How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! Have you checked the children? You're one of us. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. You're gonna need a bigger potion. I'd buy that for a dollar. No more room in hell. The dead will walk I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast devoted, or the, the show devoted, to bringing you the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I am co-host Justin Bishop. We are joined this week by writer, comedian, and David Hasselhoff enthusiast, Mr. Todd Davis. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Oh, that, that was tickled that. him. Yeah. Todd's, a, Todd's, a big night, Todd's a big fan of Knight Rider. Right here. All right. Welcome to week five of our Romero Savini extravaganza, an epic in the making. We're halfway through after this week, guys. This is week hey. five. Are you very excited, Todd? I mean, you, you, uh, yeah. you just silenced yeah. Justin. Hey. You said yay. <laughs> yay. <but> it, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I, I, I'm enthusiastic. You are. That's why we bring you on the show, Todd. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun with you here. We've grown accustomed to Romero Savini. I feel like I know him better as a person. And yeah. uh, I feel like it's as though I can feel his scruffy gray Scruffy beard, beard next to mine oh man that's lovely <laughs> he's a lot taller than you though i think i don't he'd have to lean down to do that gary how yeah, tall is maybe. he and he does ramirez like six five six six he's get out of town i mean not I anymore not realize he was that tall yeah he's a he's a very large man now he's six feet under oh no that's i mean He's not wrong. It's not. I don't think it's offensive to say somebody has died. Yeah. <laughs> died three years ago or something, right? Yeah, it just uh, felt yeah. so heartless. Although yeah, I was going to take the joke about the scruffy gray beard. Like when he said he'd have to lean down, I was like, and he does at night when I'm sleeping. That's me. <laughs> anyway. So after the success of Dawn of the Dead, Romero, we talked about that a little bit last week, how, or two weeks ago, I guess. Dawn of the Dead was two weeks ago, wasn't it? How yeah. that was his his first major success, and that, or not first major success, but his biggest mainstream success up to this point. And Hollywood came and knocking. And so he had the clout to make just about any project that he wanted after that movie. And his very next film was one that he had actually had in the works for years from 1981. Good year, 1981, I would say. Wouldn't you say, Gary? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the year of our Lord. That's the year your mom front pooped you out? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say to that. I mean, it's true. It's true. It's the last, last time I saw her vagina. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, come on now. That's comforting to know. <laughs> Honestly, I'm glad. I'm glad that's. I'm glad that's a true I, statement. I feel like that there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, I think that's perfectly normal. <laughs> uh, but that movie from 1981, the movie we're talking about today, it's called Night Riders. 
Once, courageous knights roamed the land, searching for adventure, ready to brave any challenge. Knight Riders. The knight is a fighting machine, disciplined in mind and heart, and noble to the death. Knight Riders. Action. Adventure. Romance. Heraldry. Pageantry. And magic. Magic got to do with the soul, man. Only the soul got destiny. Knight Riders. For most people, George Romero's name is synonymous with the horror genre. And as we've already discussed in this series, it wasn't ever really his intent to be a quote-unquote horror filmmaker. After the success of his zombie movies, that's exactly what he became. So it may come as a surprise to folks who are unfamiliar with this film, including really the three of us. I mean, we all knew about it, but I, well, Gary didn't. He had never heard of this movie before. We were fairly unfamiliar with what this movie was about. And, and I feel like a lot of people maybe who are even listening to us right now may have heard of it or may have seen the poster, but may not have known what the movie was. We thought it was about back of house at medieval times. It was a joke Tom made earlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it may come as a surprise though, to people that his follow-up to his biggest success so far is a character drama, a two and a half hour character drama about a bunch of LARPing Renaissance Fair nerds. Yeah, I think that every time it's like he makes a zombie movie and then he's just like, God, I just got to get away from this. But they always, this is the story of zombies, man. They just they keep, always keep coming. I, well, I mean, look, you know, think about it. If you just did a, a big thing that was super successful for all of your all of your investors or for whatever studio you're a part of, you kind of for at least one project, you kind of get the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, I, um, and I think that's what happened on this. I don't think this is necessarily Romero trying to get out of horror filmmaking because he was already at work on a couple of Stephen King adaptations that are set firmly within the horror genre. But I think that he probably knew that this was the only time, or it may possibly be the only time in his career that he would have the the pull to get something like this made because he knew that this is not a movie that probably that, you know, a, a first time filmmaker could have ever gotten made. It's too. Right. You know, so well, I, I don't I mean, necessarily think of, he was trying to get out of the genre. I think that he knew that like he was going to be stuck in the genre for most of his career, but he now had the ability and the clout to get this movie made. Right. But if you think, I mean, and it's, and again, you know, like I said, that this is kind of what happens. Look at, Peter Jackson with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then they kind of tossed him the keys to the kingdom and said, you know, Hey, look, whatever you want to do. And he went and made King Kong and it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a passion project of his and he did, he did the big studio thing. One of a bunch of awards, got him a bunch of money and then they let him do whatever he wants. Same thing kind of happened with Chris Nolan too. Like he cranked out some really great Batman movies and then they're like, all right, whatever you got in the works, yeah. go for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think, but I'm not more, unlike zombies, the hobbits just keep coming. That's right. true. Well, I, and I think even like with the Peter Jackson example, I think a better example would be the Lovely Bones. You know, because because uh, King Kong was another major success, but the Lovely Bones is kind of a more 
personal, more a smaller story, you know, that was was a real passion project of his as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. For Romero, filmmaking was a a family affair. As we've already seen in the series, Romero was one of those filmmakers who'd like to surround himself with familiar faces. These are people that he'd worked with in the past, past collaborators, schoolmates, family, friends. You know, he, he liked, he was a, a truly regional filmmaker. And Pittsburgh was basically, Pittsburgh says Hollywood. He was not a Hollywood guy. He could have been a Hollywood guy, but he wanted to work in Pittsburgh and that was his studio. That was his backlog. And over the years, he collected a loyal cast and crew family to help him out with that. And, and you'll see a lot of those faces in this movie as well. You'll see his wife, Christine, or his future wife, Christine. I think they got married after this movie wrapped, if I remember correctly. And uh, you've got Martin's John Amplis and, of course, you know, the, the co-star of this whole series, Mr. Tom Savini. Yes. like that guy. Can I tell you something, though, that really drives you crazy when you think of something and it just won't go away? I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, so I just have to say this. The Hob hits keep on coming. That's just been in the back of my mind this whole time. I'm really glad you got that that out of your system. After I said it, I was like, I'm not going to make that joke, and I'm going to let it go, but I couldn't, and it just keeps playing in my mind, just doing something like, oh, it's NZM Radio, Mordor. The Hob hits keep on coming. (laughs) No, I, I... I totally get it. I've had the song Benny and the Jets stuck in my head for about three weeks now. Oh, I so, feel like I so feel I'm, good though that we got it out of the way. We can go back to Savini. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and talking about the Savini bikini. Oh man, we're gonna talk about the Savini bikini. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I see that? Oh, that's such an obvious joke. Oh. Don't knock it because you didn't think of it. Oh, it's such a good such no. I'm saying that joke. he's no, mad at himself. I'm mad at myself. So the thing is, after the success of Dawn of the Dead, Romero could have gone the Hollywood route. He, I'm sure, he was getting tons of offers from Hollywood to make horror movies. You know, and I'm sure he could have cashed in on that and made a lot of money. But that's not who Romero was. He he chose to stay independent. He was always independent, and he chose to stay in Pittsburgh for the majority of his career. Honestly, like he never ended up going to Hollywood. When he'd finally left Pittsburgh, it was to go to Canada to move to, move to Toronto. So he never was a Hollywood guy. Instead of moving to Hollywood to make whatever horror movies they might have tried to throw his way, he instead made what is probably his most personal film and one that expresses on screen in its story his desire to stay independent, to never sell out to the man. So Night Riders was originally conceived as a... It was actually conceived as... A period piece. It was originally set in medieval times. It depicted the darker side of medieval lore. But after he spent a few years directing sports documentaries, which we discussed uh, back in our second episode of the series, we talked about things like the O.J. Simpson movie and stuff, but he's also filming a lot of racing stuff. He did one called Driver Mario Andretti, which obviously was about Mario Andretti, the race car driver. And he kind of got inspired a little bit by that. And he retooled this concept to revolve around modern day motorcycle riding nights. And another source of inspiration for that change came from Sam Arkoff. We've talked about Sam Arkoff on this show already a couple of times. He was the B-movie producer who ran American International Pictures. He's the guy who didn't want Night of the Living Dead because it was in black and white, you know, or he, or he didn't want Ben to die at the end, you know, that same guy. 
he he'd already turned down Romero twice over the years, and Romero pitched this to him again, and this is what Romero has to say about that meeting. Night Riders <laughs> was funny. I had written a script about basically the same story, but I had them on horseback. I, I modeled it after the there was a, a group called Society for Creative uh, Anachronism that that stages these jousts. And I was pitching it around. And it was actually Sam Arkoff. We pitched it to Sam Arkoff. And he said, eh, I'll tell you what, put the, put the guys on motorcycles and maybe I'm interested. It's going to be interesting, or, or it's interesting that Romero finally just took his advice. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah. went with something he said. Yeah, yeah he, he did. I mean, he, he owed it to him. Yeah, he let it stew for a while. And then finally he's just like, yeah, man, that's not a bad idea. He kind of came around to it. So he rewrote the script. He set it in a modern uh, era, and he put his knights on the back of motorcycles. And he was inspired by local, like, Renaissance Fair troops, which at the time that he was writing this was a fairly recent phenomenon. Like, now, I mean, rent fairs are everywhere. They're, right. they're a big thing. But at the time, like, that was sort of a new concept that they were depicting here. Yeah, I... Uh... I always wondered kind of how that got started because it seems very nerdy. Seems, yeah, well, I was going to say very like, but yeah, nerdy, but like very specific, it's very, like, a very specific type of nerd. Yeah. yeah. Like, a, like theater kids would be really into it or, um, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons folks, my people. I wonder if this idea would have been like to actually make them King Arthur and stuff like that, if that was the thing. In this, I mean, I think that the characters in this are very much modeled after those types. I would say that... Oh, yeah. Well, I meant if he had Arthur kept and... the original concept of setting oh, it in gotcha. medieval times, like if he would have just made it... Because what's weird is, is although Arkoff didn't like it, I mean, I think that same year that this movie was released, like Excalibur came out. The same day. Oh, the same day. Well, they came out on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> so even weirder. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, Excalibur was like huge. And as we'll discuss, this movie that would have been one of those weird things, though, like Hollywood does, where like Dante's Peak and Volcano come out right right around the same time, or Deep Impact and Armageddon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was the year of the medieval movies. I mean, this movie definitely is inspired by medieval lore, but in a a pretty interesting way. Uh, But I, I, I think it's a fun twist to, you know, had these not be actual medieval knights, but people who are, I think as we'll get into the themes of this movie, I think that the, uh, the fact that they use like medieval lore as an inspiration, like the whole like chivalrous life and things like that as their inspiration, I think works better because it's, it's people modeling themselves after something that's really more of a myth than any, than anything that actually happened in history. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes you think about people like um, uh, John Krakauer's book, Into the Wild, which got made into a film not that long ago. But uh, Chris McCandless kind of did that, where you totally reject everything, you know, the standard ideas of like money and society, it all gets thrown away for this life free from all that stuff. And you're holding yourself to a higher ideal. I mean, that's very similar to what's going on with Billy in this movie. 
Yeah. And there's very something, similar. And I mean, there is something very romantic about it, but you know, at the end of the day, as they do in this movie, it's kind of like, hey, we should probably get some money at some point. <laughs> well, we're, hung- we're hungry. Uh, <laughs> much like Debbie Does Dallas was originally a high concept character drama. <laughs> <laughs> So Romero's retooled this to to have motorcycles. I mean, that, that that's kind of fun. It, it allows him to do some fun stunts and you know whatnot. And it just so happens, as we've discussed, you know, like in Dawn of the Dead, one of his very good friends and collaborators was a motorcycle enthusiast, Mister Tom Savini. Now Savini doesn't have a whole lot to do in Night Riders with his makeup effects skills. There is very little blood. I mean, he's still the make, he still has that credit at the end of the film. He's still the makeup effects supervisor, but there's very little blood in this movie. I mean, he's, he made like the stitches on Billy when he gets injured and, you know, there's a couple moments, but there, and there's very, I mean, the, the story doesn't lend itself to that. There's very little real violence in this movie. Even when there is violence, most of the time it's sort of, for fun almost you know and harris has some weird fucking wound that pops back up randomly (laughs) well he he, they talk i mean he got it his uh, he got pinched by his armor during the battle yeah it's just weird it's like it's like you you can't believe i I don't know anyway doesn't matter right now i'm not knocking it i'm just saying it's funny like he took a while to bleed out so i'm saying well he kept (laughs) reopening the wound yeah you know, he, he got it stitched up and it reopened. Yeah. That's how, that's how that works. When you're sure not taking care of yourself, as King Billy does not. He looks in great shape. I don't know why you would say something like that. <laughs> he does look in great shape. Ed Harris has incredible posture. He does. He really does. And a fantastic butt. Yeah. Too bad about the hairline. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was... He was already, it was going bye-bye this early in his career. It's yeah, very, very impressive. early. Yeah, he, uh, he looks he looks like he's about our age, but also, he also looks 50. Like he's, <laughs> like, it's he's, both. Yeah. Uh, well, we were talking about Savini, so let's finish Savini. Yeah, let's yeah, yeah, go back to Savini. So Savini is the makeup effects guy in this movie, but Knight Riders also acted as the biggest on-screen role that Savini had been given so far. And you, you get to see a lot more of him in this movie than you had in any of the previous Romero films. Now we're going to talk about the Savini bikini, right? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> get to the Savini bikini. No, I, I, had, uh, I, had, I did not realize he was ever in like this high of a billing, like in a oh, movie. Oh, he's like the like, second lead in the movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just, uh, I've known him mm-hmm. as Tom Savini, the, the makeup guy. And also like, hey, catch the right movie. You can see him in a nice little character spot. Or something here and there. Yeah, I was really I, I impressed of, with this one. And I knew he was in this, but I didn't know the role was as big as it is. I kind of always saw his acting side as like he was being given cameos by filmmakers who admired right, his, exactly. yeah. his makeup right. work. You know, they're like, yeah. oh, this guy can act, you know, without seeming like a you know block of wood, like a lot of non-actors would. But he's not a non-actor. Like as we discussed, like back in in, in episode two of this, he had a, a big background in theater like that. He was an actor even yeah. before he was a makeup guy. He was an actor or, or he was honing those skills at the same time. That's what this and show is for. You learn so much. You learn it's educational. 
And as he had done in previous Romero films, Savini also worked as a stuntman on this film. Now, he was clearly not the only stuntman, and he did actually have a stunt double. But a lot of times when you see Savini on the back of a motorcycle or even scenes where he falls off of a motorcycle, that was really Savini. Like, a lot of times Romero would, like, ask him to do a stunt, and he would have to, like, go tell his stunt double, hey, hey, George wants me to do this one. And and Savini (laughs) himself. Yeah, it's weird. I never, that was another thing I never knew about him before we started this series. Like, I never really realized that he was a stunt guy as yeah. well. But, uh, you know, I, I think actually right before we saw this, started this series, I saw uh, Kane Hodder on uh, The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, and he mentioned Savini and, like, stunt stuff, as Kane yeah. Hodder is known for. And uh, and they seem to have, like, a little rivalry going. And, you know, they were talking about bench pressing, and he's like, you know, like how much can you still bench press? He's like, I don't know, just more than Savini. I can tell you that much. Seeing <laughs> uh, how good Savini is in this makes me wonder why we haven't seen more of him as an actor. Well, I was just, I was just about to say, I think, I think, honestly, I mean, he's yeah, primarily stunts, primarily effects, but you can see when he's on screen with Ed Harris, who's a pretty good actor yeah yeah, uh you know we'll just say he's a pretty good actor um he he right i think being on that brings his level up Mm -hmm. and i honestly for me because i think i've seen a lot i think gary you were saying it's a lot of cameo stuff and a lot of character you know small bit roles and whatnot but like seeing him opposite ed harris i was like yeah he should have probably done more more i don't know of anything after this where he's as good as he is in this well i don't know that he would ever he was ever given the opportunity to have this big of a role after this i don't yeah i, don't, I can't yeah. recall any maybe it's a romero I, thing yeah yeah and i don't know how good he'd be in meteor dramatic roles because there's no real proof of that so i can't say it one way or the other but he is very charismatic. Yeah. In, both yeah. in real life and on camera. So that makes him pretty perfect for roles like this. And, and for a lot of the other roles, like uh, like Todd's referenced uh, his role in From Dust Till Dawn a couple of times on this series. Yeah. And roles like that, like just, you know, a, the go-to like character actor guy. He's got enough charisma right. to, to play that kind of guy, you yeah. know. And, and his his character that he plays in this, Morgan, the Black Knight, he could have easily just been portrayed as a just a total asshole. But Savini does give him a humanity. Like, he, he never really becomes, like, a villain in this, you know? Like, he's, yeah. he's misguided, but he's not nefarious, necessarily. There's that slight tinge of something's nice about him still. Like, yeah. you can't hate him all the way. Which is interesting, actually as we'll get into is because I, I feel like a lot of people are that way in this movie. Like Ed Harris, I think also walks a fine line sometimes on, on how you perceive him in certain points. Also Savini's face though, just it's got a weird, unique face. Yeah. Well, just I mean, to point that out to, to go back to what you were just saying, Gary, I think there are some interesting aspects of Ed Harris's character in Billy that, um he holds he's he's holding to those ideals so tightly that he's letting his family slip through his fingers yeah i I feel like i want to get into that i I feel like we'll we'll talk about some more about that character stuff but yeah 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 so ed harris at the time of course we know ed harris now he's in all kinds of major stuff he he would have his 
kind of mainstream breakthrough role right after this with the right stuff where he played John Glenn. Uh, but we know him from like The Abyss, uh, A History of Violence, uh, more recently Westworld on HBO where he had yes. a pretty big the rock. Role. Yeah. Uh, the rock. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so while he was already 30 years old when he filmed this, he, but he, he wasn't, you know, a new actor, but this was only his second like film role. Uh, his second major film role. I think he'd had one previous one before where it was like a very small bit part. But right before this, he played the villain in a Charles Bronson movie called Borderline. This was definitely his like first ever top build performance in a, yeah. in a feature. Yeah. yeah. And he began his career on stage and spent the latter part of the 70s doing pretty steady work on television before making the jump to the big screen. And he actually knew how to ride a motorcycle. I was digging up stuff on him, and he he knew how to ride the motorcycle because he had been in chips, and so oh, he already really? had the skills. <laughs> because I, on the commentary that I was uh, on this with, with Romero, it's Romero and Savini and and uh, Christine Romero and John Amplis pops in for a little while. They talk about how Harris did not feel comfortable on. On the oh. motorcycle. Well, somebody yeah, lying, they, man. Yeah. They, somebody they talk, lying. <laughs> they talk about how, like, he had to basically learn to ride a motorcycle on on set. And, and, like, but he got very comfortable throughout it to where he was wanting to do, you know, where they're riding out on the road and things like that. He wanted to do that himself. But at first, they say that he was pretty unsteady on it. Yeah. Huh. Maybe Ed Harris is lying. He's a prankster. <laughs> I read that like throughout the filming of this movie, like at the hotel they would be staying at, he constantly, that he was known for that, like constantly pranking people. Really? <laughs> yeah, that he just loved to fuck with you. Huh. Like, I think uh, he's which is really weird good. for him. I just can't picture. I don't know. Yeah, he seems so serious, you know? Yeah. Never seen Ed Harris in a, like a romantic comedy. Exactly, exactly. See, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing him like saying like ha huh, gotcha you know whatever but like in the tone that he uses from the rock it's like fuck you motherfucker that's <laughs> not sound like ed harris from the rock <laughs> i know <laughs> i know it doesn't sound like him at all that was terrible but just kind of like i got you all right tone down <laughs> we'll be right back with more hobbit radio the hobbits keep on coming <laughs> uh, i think harris is really good here uh, there is something about, you know, we joked about his posture, his hairline, but it does make him seem more mature and more of like a, a leader than someone his age normally would, I guess, because again, he's only 30 years old in this. And it's a really great, very nuanced performance, I think. And, and Harris is not afraid to go big as necessary or go really dark sometimes as necessary. I think most yeah. of his hairline went to his chest just to be clear. <laughs> it's weird because he has like he's he's got he's balding with blonde, like fair hair, but he's got a deep, dark, bushy chest. And uh just very impressive there. Uh but I agree. I mean, this goes back to the thing that Todd was just talking about. I mean, Ed Harris in this movie is just, I mean, he's phenomenal. Like he's yeah, just, yeah he's really he's really good. Yeah, he walks this weird line of being uh, too much, or not not too much, but yeah, like is he a dick? Maybe, kind of, but he's also got this innocence about him. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just a weird something about Ed Harris. It feels like nobody else could pull it off quite like him. Well, I think there's some nuances in that in the character development where 
he gets put in the magazine and they're talking about it. But he clear he clearly has a past as some sort of competitive, some sort of competitive writer. And, you know, when it gets brought up in the magazine, he's he's taken aback. And I think he explores every avenue of that. And as his friends are drifting closer to that world of wanting to get money and sponsorships and blah, blah, blah. He's remembering like all the hardships that came with that life. And that's why he steers so hard the other direction, which ends up making him kind of come across like a dick. Well, that's an interesting way of reading it because I would I would say that I saw it more of as a he was looking at this as this chivalry, this knightdom, this this attitude was everything he believed in. And the traveling roadshow was exactly everything he felt was pure. And so the second it starts to seep into this other territory of entertainment you're losing it basically. And so he, yeah. he's tried to just hang on to this lifestyle and this belief system, essentially. Yeah. So other members of the cast included Romero's wife, Christine, who we already mentioned earlier. And of course, Dawn of the Dead's Ken Foree, Scott Reiniger, they're both in there uh, in, in pretty small roles, which is kind of funny because they were the leads in that film. But that, that's kind of what happens. Even, you know, John Amplis is, has a very, small role in this i mean he's the his credited as white face i think he's a like a mime or a court jester yeah yeah type. uh you know so uh, which and then so- funnily enough will not get you canceled today it's exactly the right <laughs> one to do <laughs> uh several actors including morgan freeman auditioned for the role of merlin before the part went to a performer named brother blue who is a total badass. I don't he know. Is. Oh, I do great. want to say, though, that I also saw Tony Todd and uh, Lawrence Fishford. Like, yeah. also oh, audition. that as well, yeah. yeah. And, and part of me, to, not to just dwell on this whiteface thing, or like any tiptoeing around racist Hollywood, or me, I guess, apparently. But no, I was just thinking, I, as I was watching it, I was like, do all the black actors just have to go to Romero? Because, like, this is the guy that will cast black people. Well, like, because is, his I mean, <laughs> his casting is diverse, and well, uh, he was well ahead of the curve on that. I mean, this is sound a logic. Decade and a half after he had done it for Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like they're like, oh, hey, this guy actually cast black people. Let's all go <laughs> audition for George Romero movies. So, Brother yeah. Blue, by the way, I don't know if you guys, I went down a rabbit hole looking at his stuff, and he is incredible like he's a he's a legendary character in the boston area he this guy studied at harvard and at the yale school of drama and he got a phd and he got a phd in divinity with pastoral sacred storytelling that's what his phd was in he was basically a professional storyteller which i didn't even know was ever a thing and it's pretty incredible incredible to watch him he would travel all around the world telling stories and regularly performed on the streets around Cambridge. Both Boston and Cambridge, the city councils at both of those cities have named him their official city storyteller. And he does a lot of, um, like, Shakespeare. He does a lot of Shakespeare, but in this cool, like, beat poet, jazz, like, it's really cool. Uh, In fact, I'll play a little clip here of him doing uh, King Lear. King Lear struggled to his feet. Big D helped him get up. King Lear's like, ah, I feel something in my bones. 
There's a shaking in my hand, earthquake in my soul, eyes got old. Bring me a looking glass that I might see myself. And the servant brought him a looking glass. And King looked in that glass. And he said, Ah, eyes got old. Earthquake in my soul. A shaking in my hand, understand. I got to die. I'm melting like snow, I hate to go. All my stuff I got can't take it with me. He said, Come here, my darling daughters, I'm your papa. I got to die. And uh, if you weren't convinced about how cool he is, all of that came after he served in World War II. Like yeah. the dude, the dude's a legitimate badass. <laughs> yeah, he is. And and the butterfly thing. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what he did in, thing. in real life. Yeah. That was yeah. his like signature, the blue butterfly. I was about to say, yeah, you could find pictures of him right up until his death where he's just like walking around and he has the butterfly on him and stuff. Yeah. So that was yeah. pretty. Is I don't know that that was a really cool revelation for me because I I did not know who this guy was and I went down a rabbit hole of watching like YouTube videos of him performing. Well, you watch it and you're immediately like, this is one of the coolest characters. I mean, there there are there are several, but you you just like listening to this guy talk, which yeah, is yeah. good for this movie since yeah. there's going to be that, and you got yeah. a guy who's interesting to hear. Just every time he talks, mm. you want to stop and hear what he has to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, even so even special. when. Even when he's on screen with Ed Harris, you're just kind of, you know, when he says stuff, you're you're like, all right, hey, everybody shut up. This guy's talking. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's he's just he's a really he's a really captivate captivating performer. And um yeah, I, I'm I'm not done going through this guy's uh stuff. He's he's pretty awesome. So financing for the film was provided by United Film Distribution as part of the three picture deal that was struck after the success of Don. We talked about that briefly during that episode. The budget for this film was the biggest of any Romero films so far. This is about twice the budget of Dawn of the Dead, about three and a half, four million dollars. And they shot most of the film in Fawn Township, which is a little city outside of Pittsburgh on an area of land that was owned by the local outdoor sportsman's club. They basically, every time that the, they move in the film to like a different city and set up, they're setting up on the same piece of land every time. And it's, you know, cause all they needed was a piece of flat earth, you know? Yeah. I, I was going to say, I bet they just, all right, let's point the camera this direction and we're in a different city. Exactly. <laughs> Romero began shooting in May of 1980 and it was almost immediately set back by torrential rains, which destroyed most of his outdoor sets. And there were some interiors filmed. They used a local warehouse there nearby and kind of converted it into a soundstage. But about 80% of the film is set outdoors. So when there are weather problems, that's a major setback for them. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely read stuff about it being delayed during rain, especially. But uh, yeah, that at one point, the warehouse uh, uh, for indoor shooting was flooded by a cloudburst. And then... uh, (laughs) And then, like, the second day of filming, a tornado hit the area and swept Jesus. a lot of it away. First. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, just insane. But other, another interesting thing, too, there is uh, uh, I was reading notes from the commentary, so I didn't actually go there and listen to it. But they said that Romero mentions in one of the commentaries, at least, that uh, Holly Hunter uh, was a Carnegie Mellon student at the time and was a production assistant there. Oh, wow. Huh. Huh. Yeah. So I just thought that was a little interesting side note. Nice. Uh, the film was... Not well received when it was released, not by (laughs) critics or by audiences. And I don't know if that was a matter of expectation. You know, people see from the director of Dawn of the Dead, 
comes Knight Riders and there's this badass poster that looks like it could be like a post-apocalyptic movie with guys, you know, riding around on motorcycles. That's what I kind of always assumed. That's what I that thought poster. based on that too. Yeah. yeah. Cause you've got yeah. a, you've got a, like a motorcycle that's got armor on it and you've got a guy dressed like a knight, you know, with a sword or whatever. And the, yeah, it looks like it could be like a Mad Max style movie. And then it's oh, just yeah. mostly like a hangout movie, like a bunch of people talking and hanging out. And there is a plot, but it's secondary to other things that Romero is trying to do here. It, it, it has, developed a cult following a lot of people really love this movie uh people who appreciate it for what it is without those expectations i think on it you know this is basically a very personal character drama from a guy who normally does make zombie movies you know so right and what you look at the poster and then it's it's very off-putting it's it's been a thing and a theme in some of this with him it's like this poster looks like like you said i immediately thought like a mad mac mac style thing it's like these knights but they're riding motorcycles it's probably futuristic but they're wearing medieval clothes or something yeah. and uh but then also ed harris who i didn't even i didn't even know ed harris was in the movie honest to god before i started like watching it ed harris is the guy in the poster that's the familiar art and he's got a goofy kind of grin on his face too. So you're like, Oh, maybe it's like kind of a slapstick comedy. I did yeah. not know going in that I was getting like, I mean, the only thing I could compare it to is like easy rider or something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 I, uh, and, and looking at, uh, in looking at all that, um, I had a thought and it's gone now. Never mind. All right. well, <laughs> Sorry. For everybody asking though, because I know you're at the, out there right now and you're asking and you're like, but what about Knight Rider? <laughs> I did see that this, <laughs> the, Knight Rider came out the next year, I think. Uh, okay. I, was, I was looking at this, yeah. And uh, But they, I think the producers got a payment from the show so that they could keep the name Knight Rider oh, for okay. the show. Huh. Uh, you know, they could retain the usage and not have to change everything around or something. Okay, I remembered my thought. Um, <laughs> I mean, we talk we talk about how you know Romero was this um, you know got his reputation as this horror movie guy, but if you look at his horror movies, they're all really character driven. You know, you got yeah, yeah. three people trapped in a house. You got four people trapped in a mall. You got this kid walking around uh, the city doing all kinds of weird stuff and we're watching him develop and then we're watching uh, another group of friends in a house and what happens to them and how things unfold and what we learn about their characters so for this you know for this to be thought of as a departure for Romero I, I, I don't see it because he really he really does take the time and I mean it's a long movie but I think all of it it keeps moving and a lot well, of it I think is it's a departure in that there are no there are no horror elements to it at all. Like this okay, is, well there's for people there's who that. are most especially for Depending people who on are how you feel about familiar. the Savini bikini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I, I get it. This is a difficult one to defend to folks who are expecting a George Romero like genre movie, because this is not a genre movie. It's definitely not a horror movie. This is really not even a genre movie, despite what the poster might make you think. It is a straight character drama yeah uh, and, and you know I, I was listening to our martin episode recently and gary gary made this point that if someone went into that movie expecting a horror movie from the guy who made Dawn, uh, night of the living dead they might be disappointed and that movie 
was a character drama as well, but at least sort of had the idea of like, maybe there's a vampire in here. Whereas this movie doesn't even try to pretend to be that. So like, if you go into this expecting the kind of movie that you're used to from Romero, you, I, I could see people being put off by that. Can I just say though, that like, I thought about Martin a lot during this movie uh, and just in my dreams. And he just visits me sometimes <laughs> in my thoughts. Uh, no, but I, I thought about that same thing with Martin about how, like I was expecting like a vampire movie. And then I got this other thing that Martin was, and I didn't end up loving Martin as a, much as a lot of people do. So similarly, I had all of these thoughts about this movie and what it was going to be. And then it ends up being this two and a half hour movie about this roving circus act, basically, you know, like the yeah. Ren Faire people uh, putting on this thing. And I, it took me, I bet, 45 minutes to really wrap my head around this is not going anywhere else, except that this is just <laughs> about these people. And uh, but I ended up fucking loving this movie. Yeah, like, really. I, really. I was honestly really not, loving it. I was expecting you to dislike this movie because I know that you don't often like movies that would be considered like slow. And I don't think this is a slow movie, but it because it meanders. Well, I reject I see, that first of all, but maybe you're right. But maybe I but, mean that's something that you comment on often when well, you don't like a movie. Well, I think that sometimes things could be long, and I could watch this movie and tell you it's two and a half hours, and I could say like, yeah, probably too long. And then, and I thought that, and then I thought, what would I cut? I don't know. I don't yeah. know what I would have cut from it. It all felt relevant. It all felt good. And no, like legitimately finished this movie. Once I finally, it's been a hell of a week, but once I finally got through it, immediately tried to find that Arrow video release. That's how I yeah. know that it's expensive and that it's hard to find because <laughs> I wanted to buy it. Like I yeah. wanted to own this movie physically. And that does not happen every time with movies we talk about. And there was something about this movie that really hit me big time. And I, I, when I say I love this movie, like, I mean, like, love, like, I want to watch it again because I feel like it could really work its way into, like, one of my favorite movies. And I know that sounds crazy, but it just, I really dug this movie. And I cannot believe I've never heard of it. <laughs> well, that's what we're all about, like, helping people discover movies, you know, including ourselves sometimes. <laughs> And, you know, and the thing is, it is long and it feels like it's two and a half hours long and it is often unfocused. It just sort of, it's a story that kind of meanders from one setup to the next, but that's because Romero is less focused on plot here. It's not, it's not a film that's driven by the story, by the narrative, as much as it is just by the characters that you're hanging out with. I think it's that you, yeah, you, you legitimately have a ton of characters to care about and it gives you something with each one. Every one of them. That, that's the thing. And that's the opening of the movie. The first, the very opening is you see it's Ed Harris like, having sex with the lady, his queen and self-flagellating like in a river, which, and you're like, what oh, yeah. the hell is this movie? Like, what is this? There's no indication, yeah. you know, the first time you watch it, that it's in modern times when you're seeing right. that. Right. It could very well be a medieval film until you see him walk up and get on his motorcycle. But then <laughs> after that, they you meet the rest of the troop, the, the Ren Faire troop. And I think this is Romero does this really, really well because he does like every one of the characters, even the little minor characters, they feel real. They feel like lived in, you know, like you you get to know enough, even if you can't name all the characters, you know enough about them and about their relationships with each other to care about them. Even, you know, like Christine Forrest and like, she's you know, 
kind of treated bad by her boyfriend, Tom Savini, you know, and you, but you don't spend a lot of time with her character in the movie, but you spend enough time to where you kind of get invested in each of them. And the thing is, George Romero does, he takes his time introducing you to all this, the opening, what would be considered the opening of the movie where you're meeting all the characters and seeing like their first, seeing a, a, an example of what they do as part of this troupe, it's 40 minutes of the movie. Like it's literally 40 minutes of the movie. That's like the opening, the opening act or whatever, which is normally, you know, 20 minutes of a movie. And maybe I'm an idiot, but I'm watching this thing. And you are. Yeah. Thank you. Um, (laughs) But there's an earnestness about every single character that's in this movie about what they're doing. Yeah. That I think, I, I, I just think that most other movies would completely miss this, but there's something about even with Savini and Ed Harris, especially with them, uh, their interactions and this thing that, I, I had I was trying to lock down like what the hell was happening in this movie because there's there like you're, you're like well they're clearly in present day you know 1981 because like there's an audience but they're also having these discussions like they're really these people and well, they, they're living by that code as if yeah they're, they're like really living this code and there's moments where you know with the the heavy mallet. Where it was like Savini's really tried to take the, you know, his spot as king, yeah. And, yeah. and you're like, wait, what is happening here? They're, they like take it very seriously. Yeah, exactly. So it's just kind of interesting, and it doesn't never comes to me. It never came across as goofy. No, you're just like it. They there felt is, like they believed it. Yeah, like you said, there's an earnestness to it. I, because of the way he treats the characters in this, I almost feel like it would work really well as a TV series. Like the, <laughs> if, you know, you, where you get to like live with these yeah. characters over the course of multiple seasons. And, and Romero, if he were making this now working today, I think that's probably how he would do it because that's what he enjoys to do is hang out with these. Like in the commentary for this, he jokes that the original cut was 17 hours long. Now he's probably exaggerating there, obviously, but he does say that he pref- he usually prefers his longer early cuts that never make it into the theaters because they show all of the character stuff, which is the stuff that tends to be the first thing that goes when you start editing and trying to move the story along and fit into a two, two and a half hour movie. But I feel like if he were making this now, it could very easily be edited to like a 12 hour series that just yeah. follows this and with the same arc, just with more room to breathe a little bit, you know, well, because I feel like he cares enough about the characters to want to do that. Did, uh, did either of you guys happen to watch Sons of Anarchy? Yeah, I quit a few seasons in because it's totally uh, okay. Up. It's it, in watching in watching Night Riders. I feel like yes, this could be this, especially if they were to do it again, could be a really great series. Um, and it actually kind of made me want to revisit that first season of Sons of Anarchy just because just because so much of it was so heavily based on Hamlet and um, you know, in looking at things like that. And of course with this, with the, with the King Arthur uh, comparison, you know, I think it would be really interesting to revisit this in like a 10, 12 uh, episode series on, you know, some streaming service or whatever, where, where they could get away with, you know, some heavier stuff and uh, you know, treat, you know, give it, give it the full treatment. I think it'd be awesome. What's what's crazy about this one to me though is like I mean he does lean into the King Arthur. I mean these characters are the characters from yeah that story. I yeah. mean just with some different names here and there and like 
a more modernized version of that. I mean, it plays out exactly like that story, but yeah. the, the better part of that is, is that, I mean, even for me, like I didn't have these notes or the backstory on it yet. I was going into it like side unseen and I could tell there's certain movies, man, that just like, I, sorry, y'all, y'all just got to buy into this. I'm going to just like gush about this stupid fucking movie for all <laughs> night. But there's certain movies like when we got into like on the old show, like Eraserhead or uh, I can't think of another one right off the top of my head. But when you talk about like, this is that person's brain, like right on screen. And it's mm. like, I was watching this and I was like this, like Ed Harris is George Romero. And this is like him yeah. battling with his life. Here. Yeah, I mean, and this is exactly what he's feeling right now, and it's I perfectly think displayed. Why, I think that's why this movie strikes a chord with people, and especially with a lot of creative people. You know, you you a lot of writers, you know, film writers and stuff are really into this movie, and I think it's because, and I, I think this is probably also why Romero considers it one of his personal favorites of all of his films, because this is a story by about a man who lives by his principles, like yeah. Billy. King Billy is not in this game to make money or be famous. Right. That's why he gets so aggressive in his refusal to sign that kid's magazine. That's why he doesn't want to do it because he's like, this is not what I'm doing this for. This is how I live my life. Right. And because Billy, yeah, he, he is Romero. He's, he's not as likable as Romero. He's kind of an asshole about yeah. his ideas. Whereas Romero, everyone seems to love Romero and he just seems like a great guy, you know, but <laughs> he does represent an indie filmmaker who isn't trying to get rich and go Hollywood, which is what Romero stood by. You know, he's just trying to live by his own principles. And then the rest of, you know, the casting, the rest of the, the troop are his cast and crew. Like he's an indie filmmaker and these are the people helping him make the movie. Even some of the elements of what the, what the other members of the troupe do are very similar to like a film set. You've got like people running sound and things like that, making music. Yeah. So it's very similar to like, they're making a movie. That's his metaphor essentially in this. But what's even cooler about it for me too, with him is that when you watch this movie, like you get, I mean, my God, I feel like you get so much of who Romero is as a person. And as far as what you see in other movies of his, like, like Knight Riders has a similar plot point to like every other movie that Romero does. It almost feels like, like we'll, we'll see it coming up in others. We've seen it already. Just this idea of like, he loves the ingenuity and the, the, the humanity and, and what it can do. And like, so, so he, he likes this little group of people. Like they've developed this life for themselves, but that he also like hates the outside world and what it will do to you and uh, that, that those guys are the villains and it'll make you tear yourselves apart because of everything that's like coming to get you from the outside. But I also like that it, it, it does feel optimistic uh, at points, which I feel like sometimes he's lacked. I mean, I guess he kind of got there with Don. This one yeah, felt the like, ending. yeah, the, this one. Yeah. And, and that wasn't even originally his idea, like we discussed, but yeah, like this one I feel like is it's sad, but it's also kind of a, like it's, it's sentimental. It's a happier ending, but uh, where else was I going with this? I've got so much like thoughts about this movie, but I also love that he's <laughs> able to look at Ed, 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 Ed Harris's character as King Billy uh, is George Romero. 
a lot of people would take that position and write that guy as like the ultimate hero. And I don't feel like that happened at all. He's much more complicated. He's a a very complex character who maybe Romero even is willing to objectively see himself. Like he's got these principles, but also maybe he's being kind of a dick about this whole thing. Yeah. Maybe maybe that keeps it from being bigger. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a really cool complex look at someone. Well, with the ending, the ending being what it is, you you get this great moment of Ed Harris handing a uh, crowning spoiler. You get the uh, you get this great moment of Ed Harris crowning. Uh, We're talking about mom's vagina again, and anyone. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Uh, no, but you get this great moment of Billy crowning Morgan, and they have this. Really, and it and it's because they speak. I felt like when they were speaking to each other in that moment, like maybe that wasn't even scripted. It felt like such a genuine moment that you're almost you almost get a little bit of it, and you. I found myself leaning forward to to hear what they were saying, just because that felt like such a like such a close moment. And then when when Billy, you know, when Billy's destiny finally catches up with him. It ends very, very uh, somberly, but uh, you get this great moment. You get the you get Merlin sort of waving goodbye, um, even you know to the camera, like he can, you know, he's able to see through the lens to the audience and just say, "Yep, this is the end of our story." And then you get this kind of cool rebirth of Morgan leading the pack down the road to the their kingdom's continuance and it's it's all kind of you know you get that this big life and then death and then rebirth it's it's a really fantastic journey to to watch these characters go on even even uh, over two and a half hours again like gary said i don't know what i'd cut it's all it's all important it's all relevant absolutely yeah yeah i mean and and billy you know he's living this life because this is a place where he can live out his ideals. Like he's, he's, yeah. this is who he is. And this is where that's accepted, you yeah. know, and not, not everyone in the troop shares those ideals at first. Morgan comes around to it, but Morgan, when he is in the early parts of the film, he's just, he likes riding motorcycles and he likes getting drunk yeah. and fucking like, that's why he's there. Yeah. That's what he's there for. Yeah. Uh, like a, like a, like someone who gets into filmmaking for the fame and fortune, right. you know, <laughs> And he eventually does get tempted away by a shifty agent, which, by the way, you know who that was? Mar- Martin Ferrero, who played the agent, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, that's right. I oh, was like, yeah. I know I know his face. I can't. Yeah. I can't yeah. He's the lawyer who gets eaten on the shitter. <laughs> I also love that the name of that company the, was something like Silver Bullet Enterprises. <laughs> yep. uh, Silver Bullet Enterprises. So it's like, this is the thing that's going to kill this whole thing. I always thought. Yeah. Was yeah. And But then he quickly finds out that the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, we call it, are not what he's made it out to be, which is something that Billy knew all along. That's why he didn't, he never sold out. And that sort of, that goes back to, this is why Romero spent most of his career in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, he could be king, you know, but in Hollywood, the, the, the king is the guy with the money, the guy with the pocketbook, the guy who's financing everything uh, because yeah. you're, you are kind of at their mercy at a certain point, which Romero would find out later on in his career. Uh, he would succumb to 
the temptations of Hollywood and it made him miserable. <laughs> so. Well, and Savini like plays that innocently enough that it's like, he is easily the villain of the story, but he's also like, he just wants the next big thing and he thinks he's ready to be the king. And so he doesn't understand why he can't go ahead and have that spot. And so he wants something bigger, something better. He's always looking. It's like an understandable uh, sure. part yeah. of his character. And so he does have deep doubt inside that framework of one of these people though. And so by yeah. the time he gets there and he starts to see how much it eats everyone alive, he just wants to get back. And, well, yeah, yeah. And I love that the idea that Romero's idea, because he was not a Hollywood guy, that his idea of like Hollywood debauchery is guys in a hotel room, like smashing lights, <laughs> <laughs> right. just throwing lamps at each other. These scared girls on the bed. <laughs> the guys aren't even interested. They just beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> and that was like, that's like the come to Jesus moment for Savini in this movie. It's like, oh no, this is, this is the Hollywood is horrible. This is what it's come to. And that's what like pushes him back towards the troop. And then of course, he becomes the king, yeah, at the end. But what's fun about the way Romero does that even is that there's no twist. There's no cheating. Like, he just wins. He just wins. And Billy just hands over the crown. At this point, Billy is ready, and he has realized that his time to move on has come, and he just hands it over. And he, I don't know, I feel like Morgan's learned his lesson that, like, living that artistic life is better than money because that's what Romero seems to live by he's in it for the art not for the the money you know yeah you can give up all this to go for that but you're giving up all of this that you've grown to love and and so you'll never like you know you can't have both and so he realizes what means more to him and so it's nice which also includes stealing billy's wife right yeah Yeah. well that's uh (laughs) that's lancelot you know that's uh oh yeah yeah that's alan alan yeah Yeah, alan is lancelot he's you know which is what happens with arthur you know yeah and uh it's not maid marion why can i think of arthur's woman's name guinevere guinevere god help me maid marion it's like kevin (laughs) costner should have played you know but anyway well uh, in in talking about you know um the women uh playing a very important role here i feel like when uh, Morgan gets to a place where he's he's become the king of this of this new kingdom, and he thinks he's found his queen, she kind of brings all that crumbling down for him. And I feel like once he's you know once he's confronted with the fact that like oh you're just another guy that I'm banging while my significant other is uh, you know out of town. And that sinks in. And then, of course, he goes back to the hotel room and finds the guys just trashing it. He's like, yeah. he's like, you know what? It, this this reality is more fake than what I had going on with Billy and the troop out in the out in the woods. So, Man, it's, it's funny that we've talked about this so, so much already. And there are so, still so many great side characters that we've barely yeah. like mentioned, like Tuck. Friar Tuck, right, like, which is right. not even from Arthur. He's from, you know, <laughs> the wrong legend. That's Robin <laughs> Hood. Yeah. That's right. Robin Hood with Maid Marian. <laughs> but they, what a fun, funny character, you know, and, and yeah. just, who gets, he's comic relief, but he does fit into the story. He's not just comic relief. And 
I mean, there are so many great little side moments like that, though, you know, like the yeah. the uh, Alan and, and the the like groupie girl that he hooks up with and her, him trying to get her away from her abusive families, this whole extra side plot. And and, and I, I think I did not look this up, Gary, so maybe you did. But the guy who plays her father, who she calls like a fat slob, is that the racist cop from the beginning of Dawn of the Dead? Man, it could have been. I did not look that up. No, I that's think a- it might be. Spe- speaking of that scene, by the way, Mr. Stephen King, whose birthday is today as we're recording this, has a, has a, has a silly little cameo in there as Hoagie Man, <laughs> as, as he's credited in the, in the end. Hoagie With his Man, wife. Yeah, Tabitha. Yeah, him and his wife are there. So that's, what, that's why you know, I made the kind of quip earlier that this would make a good like, TV shows because you've got all these little great yeah. characters who, who have their own little side plots. You know, they've got their own little side stories that are really interesting as well, even if they're not the main meat of the film, right. you know? Well, that was the interesting with, with uh, the character of Julie and she gets together with Alan, I think Alan, you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she, if you watch her as she's packing up in her bedroom, she's got the one pop culture boy poster on the one wall and there's another one by the door she's enamored with these with these figures and when she starts traveling with the troop and then sees like oh we're just gonna go to this house and hang out with these people i thought this was going to be like adventure and stuff all the time you know she she got enamored with the with the performance and thought that that was their entire life. And when she found out it was something deeper, she wasn't ready for it. Yeah. Uh, or did, or found out she didn't want it. And, but then she, she got dropped off at the life that she had, yeah. which is infinitely worse. <laughs> yeah, much worse. So, that, that actress, by the way, that's uh, Patricia Tallman, who was on Babylon 5 for years. She did, she did a bunch of Star Trek work, too. Yeah. So let's talk about the end of the movie a little bit. Yeah. Because we've talked about, you know, where Morgan's journey kind of ends with him getting his crown. But then Billy has a whole little epilogue that is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. So he he starts off, you know, when he, he's off on his quest with the guy who's just called Indian is is the character's name in it. Right. Um so they also, go off on also the also a badass. Like just Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's cool. Uh, but the first thing that he does is he finds that fat cop from the beginning of the movie who was giving him such a hard time, who he told, you know, I'll find you later. And he finds him and beats the shit out of him in a McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> it I becomes like it. a whole victory reel for yeah. Billy. Like, yeah. Just, yeah. I love, I love that he goes to, to uh, see the kid who wanted the autograph and hands over his sword and armor and everything, which by the way, can we talk about how lax school security was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking guy just walks in in a well, full a suit of armor time, with a with a with a, a full size sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah, different different time. That's cool. Also, like half the wall was peeling off, so I don't think that they really had a lot of funding to worry about security, <laughs> much less what would happen yeah, if all, King Arthur busted in the, up in, in, the there. in the in the one room schoolhouse in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, and we also see that he's still wounded from the battle earlier; that his wound has reopened, and he's because he's bleeding. And then he sort of like hallucinates and like sees a vision of him as an actual knight, and then he gets run over 
buy an 18 wheeler just yeah. just, just yeah. smush yeah, yeah. <laughs> he like plays chicken with a semi yeah so. don't do that <laughs> yeah. you're gonna lose <laughs> I, I, my thought was is what is indian thinking because he's just like yeah. well shit uh, well that sucks <laughs> that's <laughs> I don't know, maybe he saw that coming but i i don't know <laughs> It just uh <laughs> it's a wild ending <laughs> yeah but it just it, it felt you felt good for him and it, it the whole thing just feels i don't know it's how it's, do you think that works how do you think that billy's death works into the theme of of billy as romero in this movie how do you think that, i was, think I was literally sitting here thinking about that like like what is that saying like it's yeah. just I'll go ahead and ch- I'll go ahead and chime in with my two cents. It's I, if you notice, I think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's actually hit by a fuel truck. It looked like oh. a, it looked it looked like some sort of tanker. Okay, which which I thought was a little a little ironic that they were doing all of this, just making enough money to, for lack of a better phrase, put gas in their tank to get to the next town and do the next show. And it's kind of funny that he, or ironic that he got killed by the thing that they were all trying to get so difficult, uh, so earnestly. What can be gleaned from that is that I think in what we, in what Romero's striving to get, which you don't, you don't make art for it to just sit on a shelf like you do you make art for it to be seen but there's definitely two sides to that coin and i think in trying to pursue that there's a risk of it quote unquote killing you um and i think like we i think like you said we may get into a little bit more of that as he sort of slides in that direction a little bit later in his career yeah, I, I almost feel like Romero saw this as the end of an era for him. Mm. Uh, so Billy, the independent guy, dies. You know, the end because right. the seventies. This is being filmed in nineteen eighty. The seventies were the only truly independent decade of Romero's career, because the, his follow up to this movie would be released by Warner Brothers, one of the biggest film studios in the world. He would work within the studio system a couple of times after that and eventually go back to being independent. But the seventies were the only time that he was truly independent for like completely from, from night in 1968, all the way through this. I love that. I I think that's where I landed too, was that it was about just letting it go. And I almost feel like he saw the writing on the wall that like, it's inevitable that I'm going to have to work within the studios. If I'm going to keep making this, this is like the independent in me is, is experiencing a death of some kind, you know? Yeah. yeah he's just having a, like, he's just walking away from it basically. Yeah. And yeah, I, it's, it's great. And it's, uh, I mean, because I, I feel like one of the things it wrestles with is that uh, the, the whole, I love that, that it's complex. I mean, all of life is, and this is, he, he does a good job of tackling like showing, like I said, with, even with uh, Billy, just sometimes he's the prick and, yeah. all of that it's it shows that humanity outside what you're afraid of it is garbage there is a lot of garbage but it's also very ignorant to avoid it and uh it's there's this balancing act somewhere in there so he he realizes he's he's billy like tied up in this situation like he doesn't want 
to let go and walk out into the rest of it. But right. also it's coming. It's, it's, it's going to get you anyway. Like these people are sneaking in the cracks, you know, like it's, it's going to happen. And if you just pretend that it's not there, it tears everything else apart too. Well, and to go to sort of, you know, build off of that, I, you know, in thinking about it a little bit more like that whole, that whole epilogue of Billy's, I feel like each of those things says something different that Romero was either trying to solidify within himself or hold a punch a cop in the face. (laughs) Who doesn't want to do that? Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you know, each of those things were, you know, important elements to him. Like, yeah, he goes and finds the cop and beats the shit out of him. But I think what's to be taken away from that is he kept his word. Yeah. And I think in a yeah. in an in an industry where a lot of times people hang their hopes and dreams on someone's word, it's it's important that someone's word be worth its weight in gold. Well, how about um, he, he also hands I mean everything about himself there off to that kid. Like yeah. maybe well, there's another generation was, like a well, a I was thinking step. about that. It you know, the kid the kid wanted the kid wanted an autograph from his idol. Yeah. What Billy, what Billy gave him was something to live up to was he gave, he gave him that, and that kid's not strong enough to lift that sword, but you know what? He's going to try and he's going to try a lot. And I think that's going to make him that's that one moment's probably going to turn that kid's life around. Just like someone's art can, you know, create, create a path for them uh, for the rest of their lives. I know, I know it's been true for me and I'm sure, you know, you guys have probably seen that in your own lives too. Maybe not with, maybe not with, uh, you know, any one particular thing, but maybe a couple different things where it's kind of set you, it's set you on a path. Well, I think that him, him going back to the kid, I think you're, you're probably absolutely right there. I think another way that I see it though, is he is accepting that, the 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 kind of hero that the kid the kid looked up to him as like a motorcycle stunt man you know like, like that that kind of character and he's accepting that that's who he is the idea of who the kid thought he he was was not who he wanted to be or not who he was trying to be and he's accepting what he's become rather than this weird self-styled image that he was trying to cultivate you know what he was what he thought that he was he's accepting who he actually is which is sort of the case with Romero you know maybe he was starting off being a filmmaker who wanted to make a movie like an Igmar Bergman you know type movie Wine of the Fawn but he finally accepted hey I'm the guy who makes zombie movies and that's why this kid wants my autograph because I'm the guy who makes zombie movies and he likes my zombie movies and you think about all the all the modern uh films where you sit down and you talk to the writers the directors hell even some of the actors definitely the special effects people who dawn of the dead night of the living dead all these all these you know great 60s and 70s horror films that was where their life began and it set them it set them on that path that i was talking about absolutely so Night Riders was the third of Romero's films that was produced by Richard Rubenstein. We talked about a couple episodes ago. At the time of Night Riders shoot, 
Romero and Rubenstein were already hard at work on future projects, which actually included an adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. That's why Stephen King's in this movie, uh, because they were already, they were, they had become friends. They were becoming friends because they were working together on that. And also they were working on a possible third film in the Living Dead trilogy, but they actually decided to wait on that because at the time, Dawn of the Dead was still playing in theaters because that's how movies kind of were released back then, even though the movie was already two years old by that point, they wanted to give it, allow it to live that life in theaters and just continue to work on, you know, give it legs. If you can, you keep making money off of it. At the same time they were working on those, they were working on another collaboration with Stephen King that was not based on a book of his. And that's the movie we're going to talk about next week. Of course, probably, I said Dawn's probably his most popular film. This one gives it a run for its money. Uh, next week, we're talking about Creep Show. Ooh. Nice. You guys want to find where to stream Creep Show? Visit our website, cinemashock.net. We'll have links on there to Just Watch where you can find out where it's streaming and everything. I think that's all we got about Night Riders. I think it's time to wrap this up before this episode. I hate that because I still want to talk about his whole I know. Crew, just how. <laughs> Gay, straight, black, and white, and everybody, all these people like in this perfect little community, and they're trying to hang on to it. Even, I, you know, we were talking about the ending, we didn't talk about like the ending uh, right before the epilogue about Ed Harris's, uh, well, that whole scene really taking place. Like, it, it was interesting to me. Sorry, I know we're trying to wrap up, but uh, just that the, the show right before the last show was like the crowds taking over everything and yeah. it's just like there's all these things to like read into like about you know like the fans are involved and like now you've got the agents and all of these yeah. other people that yeah. it was just nice to have this last show they did a freaking show like he always said like ed harris i think says billy says in the sh- movie like we're not an act like a couple of times and yeah. uh and that last thing is like them with no audience, like doing the thing, like yeah, you know, you yeah. mentioned Savini actually just going and winning. The they spot. won't even like they even ask the lady who's trying to take pictures to not do it. He's like, yeah. let's just keep this in the family. Yeah. yeah, and I just think that's so. I don't, man. I I loved this movie. I thought it was great, and and you will be disappointed, by the way, if you go and you're expecting any of the things that it looks like you should be expecting. But if you just want like a good just character based story yeah. like it's just a I, I really enjoyed it and uh it's it's I I, I do not think Romero is going to top this in anything that we watch from here like I cannot yeah. imagine yeah. I think this is probably his best movie it really wow. is it it and if it's it, it's I think yeah I, I'm, I'm gonna go right along with Gary it, it, in case you in case you guys might have been wondering whether or not Todd likes this movie I really like this movie. It's really good. Um, and again, I, I was just so, excuse me, I was just so taken in by uh, some of the performances here. And yeah, if you if you begin to scratch the surface, you will find that there is layer upon layer of depth with this in terms of plot, in terms of story. And Wait, can I, mean, I- it, it, it's, it's worth it's worth it just to see Ed Harris opposite Tom Savini because they have such a great uh, yin and yang to them. And it's, it's really awesome. I know everybody needs to go and we've gone so long, but this is legitimately such a great movie that also I, I pitched earlier and I'm just going to do it. And if you guys don't like it, but you, you folks at home, let us know. Cause you're who matters. I wanted to introduce a segment called somebody needs a nap. 
And uh, so I have these two quick Amazon reviews that I found. I just went and looked and it was like one out of five stars on both of these. So I just wanted you to hear them. One star reviews. Since we've gushed, it's a different perspective. This is from (laughs) Seven Castle Forest. And he starts out this way. This is not me saying this. He says, quote, I'm not exaggerating a word of this. I think something happened to George Romero at some unspecified point after he made the original Night of the Living Dead. That first film was a masterpiece, but pretty much everything else he ever made was either average or unbelievably awful. Knight Riders falls into the latter category. It is pointless, unwatchable, and incredibly, unbearably long. I mean, with most bad movies, you can at least sit there and make fun of them to ease your suffering, but Knight Riders doesn't let you off that easily. It's not bad in a funny way, like an Ed Wood movie. It's bad in a completely serious and tragic way. Like if your dog were to get run over in the street, that's how awful this film is. I love movies, and I never thought I'd say this about a film, but this movie may actually be evil. It's like a diseased growth that people would pay a doctor a lot of money to remove. I seriously would rather watch a blank screen for the same length of time. Unless you've been hypnotized into liking George Romero's awful movies, which seems to have happened to a surprising number of people, do whatever you can to avoid this film. It is beyond anything you have ever imagined, and if I could give it less than zero stars, I would not hesitate. Well, so, somebody needs a nap. Somebody yeah. needs a nap. Uh, the other one's a little quicker. He just said, uh, uh, how did Romero end up with so many loyal fans? George Romero was, in my mind, one of the most fantastic horror developers of all time. Night of the Living Dead was delightfully horrific. Great plot, development, not too many special effects, and a great ending. However, when I went to see Night Riders, I was so disappointed. I could not believe it. It was as if Romero had tossed himself into the garbage and let actors try to direct the movie themselves. Ed Harris is absolutely horrible, as is the supporting cast. The plot is so incredibly ludicrous, and wait for it, it's almost three hours long. So I had to sit around and befoul myself with a stitch of motorcycle nights jousting for what seemed like forever. Ultimately, after Romero fans followed him from night to night, he spelled that with like night with an I get it. To, yes. yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised at the high acclaim this movie attained. Next to Dawn, this is one of the worst movies ever written. So I asked the question, how are you doing it, Romero? Teach me your black hypnotic magic. I, for one, will not joust in this arena. <laughs> Wow. I know we've been, I know we've been trying as I know, (laughs) I know we've been trying as we're getting, you know, this rebranding off the ground to sort of book some, uh, some interesting interviews and whatnot. I think we need to find these people and (laughs) show show us on the doll where the movie hurt you. Like, (laughs) I just, I I don't get it. I don't get it. Somebody needs a nap. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Well, thank you for sharing those, Gary. Do you guys have anything else before we wrap this up? I don't think so. I guess we have to go. But this movie, for reals, so good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you guys both enjoyed it. I wasn't sure where you were going to fall on this. You loved it, though, also? Yeah, yeah. I I loved it. I think it's outstanding. I I watched it one and a half times. I I didn't finish the commentary on it. I didn't have time. But um, I will because I'm very interested in it. And it's, it's tough because I know and it's a very fun commentary to listen to because it's like Romero and Savini who are very likable and fun <laughs> to listen to, you know, tell stories. 
Guys. It is tough, and I know it sounds like it could be like a just a pretentious thing to say, but like it's like, oh, you know the zombie stuff, right? Well, it's like it's hard to knock that. Yeah, obviously Romero is the zombie guy, and that's fine. But it's just like this is this is peak movie making. I feel like like this was this is yeah. this guy left to his own devices actually did make an incredible just an incredible film like an artful film and it's just it's kind of sad that it was kind of a a goodbye letter to his independence but yeah yeah. he he jokes on the commentary that he's like i think about nine people saw this movie (laughs) so (laughs) yeah i I did want to say and i'm sorry i i know we're we're wrapping again but i did see this quote from ed (laughs) harris where one of the interviews i was reading uh somebody did call ed harris and uh Oh, and, and we didn't bring up too that Savini said that they they all liked Ed Harris because he was supposed to be Romero, and so that was very difficult. Like, how are we supposed <laughs> to hate George Romero? So Ed Harris, they were like talking to him, and they're like, "How do we? Like, do you have any weaknesses? Do you have any weird stuff about you we should hate?" And he's like, "I don't know. I'm trying to quit smoking." And they're like, "You're a smoker. That's what's we're gonna do. It. <laughs> we're gonna hate. And if we see you smoking, we'll fucking hate you more." <laughs> but uh. Uh, Ed Harris on this interview, who is like, this was like 30 something years later. Uh, he said, uh, he talked about that, uh, George was a beautiful, proud. Oh, this is right after his death. He said, George was a beautiful, proud, creative, big bear of a guy. He was gregarious, loved to drink and smoke. We had a hell of a good time then. I will miss him. He was a wonderful writer. He wrote fine screenplays. Some he couldn't even get done. They weren't all horror movies, and that was part of the problem. He got frustrated with the business. I can't blame him. He was an important guy in my life, and I'm sorry that he's gone. But it just, uh, I don't know, something about that, like, maybe tear up a little when I was reading it the first time. Yeah. I was just like. I'm not, I'm not crying. You're crying. It was Somebody just, it was map. sweet. Just that <laughs> that he he remembered him after all this time. And Well, yeah. and Aaron Harris is going to show back up next week, so. Sure, Yeah. <laughs> Well, right, I'll uh, shut up now. I'm backing away from the microphone. I think that's a good place. I think that's a good place to wrap it up there, Gary, with that quote. Uh, so I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. I'm at this is Gary Horn. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis. All right. You can find us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook and at cinemashock.net. Until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Don't you fucking do it, Tom. <laughs> I was just sitting here, you dirty bastard. <laughs> Daddy has the keys. <laughs> <laughs>